This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, historian Paul French discusses his new book, City of Devils, The Two Men Who Ruled the Underworld of Old Shanghai. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot highlights bestsellers from the first half of 2018. And we'll tell you about some big changes in store for PW Radio. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List powered by NPD BookScan. Well, um, no news is no surprise in uh, the hardcover fiction world. The President is Missing is still number one, mm. sold another 50,000 units in hardcover this week. It is going gangbusters. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised once we we have Jim chatting with us if it is already among the top bestsellers for the first half of 2018. But we do have a new number two, All We Ever Wanted by Emily Giffen. We gave this a starred review, said that Giffen's stellar latest novel set in Nashville concerns the wealthy Brownings and the scandal that ensues when their Princeton-bound son appears to have taken a racy photo of a high school sophomore. Uh, we say that Giffen's plot touches on social class and misogyny while delivering an excellent page-turning story, and this satisfying novel will appeal to readers looking for a nuanced, thoughtful take on family and social dynamics. So that's at number two. Um, sold a handy 26,000 copies right out of the gate doing very well. And if Clinton and Patterson weren't sitting there at the top of the list, <laughs> it would definitely be a number one bestseller. Poor timing there, but uh, still a very satisfying first week out. At number 11, we have Before and Again by Barbara Delinsky. We called this a deeply moving novel that follows one woman's journey of self-discovery as she learns to face the ghosts of her past. Uh, in a moment of distraction, this woman accidentally ran a stop sign. Uh, the subsequent crash killed her five-year-old daughter and ended her marriage. And uh, she is trying to come out of that and figure out how to rebuild her life. We say that the novel expertly explores the depths of her guilt and redemption as she learns not only how to find closure from the tragedies of the past, but to forge, forge a future in which she can forgive herself. This is a rewarding, emotionally intense novel. So that's at number 11. And uh, moving down the list a little bit, Awakened by James S. Murray is at number 16. Uh, it is co-written with Darren Wormouth. And uh, we say that Aliens meets the taking of Pelham 123 <laughs> in this fast-moving science fiction thriller that mostly keeps the reader's disbelief suspended. Uh, it is set in a near-future New York City, and the mayor is about to inaugurate the Z-Line, a new subway route linking New Jersey and Manhattan, with an elaborate pavilion under the Hudson River at the halfway point. And uh, when the, the first train that enters the pavilion arrives empty, full of shattered glass and blood, they realize that something is very, very wrong. Uh, we say that fans of horror that's stronger on action than on character will find 
this an entertaining, if unmemorable, ride. As far as shattered, <laughs> until the shattered glass hit, as someone who lives and commutes from New Jersey, I was pretty thrilled about I know, this. it sounds real exciting, right? But uh, apparently, uh, we shouldn't rush to replace no. the path train right. as... Uh, <laughs> terrible things could happen. So uh, that's uh, that's at number 16. And finally, at number 20, Liar, Liar by Lisa Jackson. We also gave this a starred review. Um, we also did a Q&A with Jackson. Mm. Uh, super interesting stuff, talking about how she uh, brought the characters together for this very interesting uh, novel of suspense with just a little romance in it. And uh, it features the daughter of a celebrity impersonator who disappeared in Las Vegas with her young twins. And so her teen daughter uh, tried to figure out how to have her own life after her mother and her siblings vanished. Um, and then 20 years later, a woman dressed to look like the mm. celebrity impersonator jumps to her death from a San Francisco building. And this sets in motion a whole bunch of questions about what really happened to Dee Dee Storm. Uh, we say that the many threads of this action-packed female-driven mystery are tied together by the mesmerizing larger-than-life character of Dee Dee Storm, who haunts the book to its final pages. Um, so one for fans of suspense, mm -hmm. and there is a romantic thread in there as well. Jackson's fans know that she's always good at tying those two things together. And that's what we've got in hardcover fiction. Well, uh, over nonfiction, we only have three uh, debut titles. At number three, Believe It, My Journey of Success, Failure, and Overcoming the Odds by Nick Foles. Nick Foles uh, was the uh, quarterback who came in for the Philadelphia Eagles after their quarterback tore his uh, ACL. And it was week 14 of the 2017 NFL season. And Nick Foles came off the bench. He was the backup quarterback and led them to Super Bowl victory. So this is published by Tyndale Press. And that's at number three. And then at number 11, we have On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old uh, by Parker J. Palmer. We say Palmer, an author and poet now in his 80s, telegraphs insights from the brink of everything in this collection of lessons gleaned from contemplating one's life while nearing death. Uh, warm, generous, and funny, this impassioned book invites readers to the deep end of life where authentic soul work and human transformation become pressing concerns. Finally, at number 12, the plot to destroy democracy, how Putin and his spies are undermining America and dismantling the West by Malcolm Nance. Nance, who's an NBC counterterrorism analyst, here gives a knowledgeable, if disjointed, rehash of the Russian government's hacking into voter databases, leaking Democratic official emails, bot-flooding social media with pro-Trump fake news, and holding suspicious meetings with Trump campaign figures during the 2006 uh, U.S. presidential election. And that's what we have in nonfiction. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Paul French tells us about drugs, gambling, vice, and banditry in Shanghai between the world wars. We'll be right back. I'm Mark Oshiro, author of Anger is a Gift, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Paul French on the line. His new book is City of Devils, The Two Men Who Ruled the Underworld of Old Shanghai. Hi, Paul. So glad you could join us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So this is a look at the underworld of Shanghai between World Wars I and II. Uh, set the scene for us. What is going on then? Well, Shanghai is an almost unique place in human history, really. It was, of course, um, a, a port, part of China that was taken from China 
by the British and the Americans and 18 other nations, actually, at the end of the first opium war in the 19th century. And it was created as not a colony like Singapore or Hong Kong, but actually an international settlement. So it was run by its own municipal council, it had its own police force, and it was run multinationally, although with very little involvement of the Chinese, and Chinese law did not apply in the city of Shanghai. By the 1930s, it was the fourth biggest city in the world after London, Paris, and New York, and the densest uh, in terms of population. The thing about Shanghai that's really important is, even more than Casablanca, which, which the movies have told us was true but really wasn't, you could walk down the gangplank of the ship in uh, Shanghai when you arrived and you did not have to show a passport, you did not have to give your real name, you didn't have to do anything, you didn't need a visa. So of course, it attracted some of the most interesting characters you can imagine. And by interesting characters, you mean criminals among others? Well, it, it was almost one of the most freebooting capitalistic places in the world. So of course, Arguably, it was formed out of a criminal enterprise, which is the British desire to sell opium to everyone in China, in China in order to fund the British Empire in India. Um, uh, I mean, you know, the biggest drugs cartel ever, ever makes anything in Latin America look, look like peanuts by comparison. People tend to forget that now. And, and the British government, of course, doesn't like to remind you of it. But um, uh, uh, that was how we got Shanghai. Um, so it definitely attracted some of the biggest business types at the time, and many of the massive uh, foreign companies that operate in, in Asia today um, started out in Shanghai. But of course, anywhere where uh, nobody asks too many questions is going to attract um, a lot of criminals as well. So tell us how this, just, just a brief history, how these various countries were able to set this up and what China's role was, was in, in Shanghai. Oh, well, arguably, China had no role. It was the international concessions of uh, Shanghai. They were founded in 1848, as I say, after the victory by Britain and, and other countries in the first opium war over China, which forced the sale of opium into China. Um, everyone had their own concession. The Americans had their own concession in Shanghai as well. But around the 1860s and late 1860s, uh, the Americans and, and the British decided that it would be easier to make one big settlement that they called the International Settlement. The only people that didn't want to be part of that were the French. And so the French kept their own uh, area, which they called the French Concession or French Town. So Shanghai, even today, you can feel it when you walk mm. around the city. It feels very different when you're in the old French Quarter. Um, but then when you go into the, um, uh, the area around the uh, Bund, the famous waterfront and everything, you'll start to see more sort of British, more sort of Art Deco type architecture. But it had its own laws and you were governed by your own laws. So if you're an American citizen in Shanghai, you were supposed to live by American law. And if you broke American law, you could be prosecuted. This is the theory of extraterritoriality. And if you were British, you were under British law, French under French law, complete and utter chaos because you know courts could only call people of their own nations now if you couldn't actually prove that someone was one of your citizens then you couldn't call them at all so um the whole thing was completely chaos so it was very a legally light area with very light policing and and, and a very light uh, criminal justice system and of course this was a place for uh expat communities to, to grow uh beyond the countries you just named like jews fleeing nazism and russians fleeing bolshevism well, one of the great conundrums of Shanghai between the wars is that, of course, although it was you know, something that was extracted really by imperialism from China, it actually became a sort of sanctuary, a place of refuge for many people, um, not least uh, Chinese people who uh, moved into the international settlement and French concession to escape 
warlords to escape civil war, to escape flood and drought and, and, and disease. Um, but also, of course, after the Russian Revolution in 1917, many, many Russians, what we would call white Russians as opposed to red Russians, came to uh, China and many came to Shanghai seeking sanctuary and became stateless citizens, emigres. Um, and then, of course, once we get into the mid to late 1930s, we have this 30 to 45, perhaps, thousand European Jews who, again, because of Shanghai's unique um, situation where you did not need a visa, you didn't need a passport, they also found sanctuary there um, during the Second World War. Of course, at the end of the war, this meant that all these people were stateless. They had no passports. They had nowhere to go, which is very important to my story, because even when, as you know, the Japanese attacked China and so on, most sensible people, if they could, would try and get out, go somewhere safe. But these people, particularly the Russians and, and the European Jews, as well as, of course, the criminals who aren't going to go home because they'd have to go to prison or the police are looking for them, they couldn't go anywhere. They had to stay and, uh, and, and fight to the last in Shanghai itself. Tell us about some of the characters uh, that you focus on in your book. One of them is Joe Farron, who's a, a Viennese Jew who is a casino owner. Yeah, Joe Farron, no, nobody in Shanghai, because, of course, you don't have to give your real name. Nobody does. So Joe Farron was born Josef Polak in uh, the Jewish ghetto of um, Vienna in the last decade of the 19th century. And the one thing he could do was dance. So he became an exhibition dancer and what we used to call a taxi dancer. So women who wanted to dance with a man who could really dance um, w w would pay some money to do this. You almost argue that he was a bit of a gigolo. Um, this was you know, going on all over the world at the time. George Raft, the, the Hollywood actor, of course, started out that way. Um, he managed to get on a dancing tour of European dancers to uh, Asia, and he arrived in Shanghai and decided he liked it. Well, from exhibition dancing, Shanghai, of course, had some of the biggest nightclubs, the biggest cabarets in, in Asia and the world at that time. He started organizing chorus lines. Now, because Shanghai, of course, didn't have many regulations, many rules, these were like chorus lines in terms of sexy costumes and dances, shimmy dances, that was way beyond anything you would have been able to see in London or New York at the time. If you wanted to see anything comparable in terms of sexiness or um, showiness, you'd have to really look at the sort of thing that Josephine Baker w was doing in Paris at the time. That's, that's the kind of edginess of, of Shanghai's nightlife. And Joe Farron was the king of that. In fact, he was known as the, 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 the Siegfeld of Shanghai, of course, after Flo Siegfeld, the great Broadway entrepreneur. And then uh, there was an American named Jack Riley who ran slot machines. I didn't know about this uh, this aspect of Shanghai's history, the the casinos and the gambling. Oh well, I mean, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, because of course the, the the communist revolution and that kind of loss of our collective memory about Shanghai, people forget. But I mean, if you're watching television of an afternoon, sometimes you might see Joseph von Sternberg's. 1941 film Shanghai Gesture, which is all set in in a casino. So, you know, Shanghai, or what people used to call the 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 Paris of the Orient, the Pearl of the Orient, or even the Whore of the Orient, sometimes had that reputation in the 1930s. Of course, it it, it changed after the war. Um, Jack Riley again was was not born Jack Riley. He had another name, but he had been in the uh, American Navy in the First World War. And then afterwards, he was driving taxis in Tulsa, where he came from. And he became involved in a kidnapping. Uh, and at the time, it was the scare around the public enemies and the, the rise of J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI. And he got given a 35-year prison sentence in Oklahoma State Penitentiary there at McAllister. 
Uh, but he was a very good baseball player. And one day they went to play against a local team. And when they all went filing back into the prison, everybody turned right except Jack, who turned left and jumped on a freight train, <laughs> hoboed across to San Francisco. Then it gets even madder. He uh, rolled or mugged a, a drunk for his uh, papers. And this guy turned out to be Jack Riley. And he thought, Jack Riley's the perfect name. There's 100,000 Jack Rileys. No one pays any attention to anyone called Jack Riley. And then just to make sure that they could never catch him, he burnt uh, his fingerprints off with acid. Wow. Which, um, was, was something people, uh, criminals often used to do in those days. Um, and then he got on a boat and he went uh, to Shanghai and um, he uh, walked down the gangplank and said, hi, I'm Jack Riley, uh, threw his American passport in, in the river and um, started running bars. Um, but eventually decided that there was one thing Shanghai didn't have, and it had no laws against them either, but he'd seen them in America. He'd seen them in uh, Manila, where the American Navy was stationed at the time, and that was slot machines. And um, as you know, the Chinese have somewhat of a reputation for gambling, so they loved them as much as anywhere else. And he flooded Shanghai with slot machines. And before long, he was known as the slots king of Shanghai, and he was making a fortune. But what he really wanted to own was the biggest casino in the Far East. And Joe Farron also wanted to run the biggest casino in the Far East. And so these two men decided to combine forces in this city where if you could get the money, you could do anything you wanted. And they decided they were going to build the biggest casino in the world. And so how did these two men meet? Well, like, like all big cities, actually, it's a village. The nightlife, you know, they were the kind of guys that, that, that you know, their, their day starts at six or seven o'clock in the evening, really, with breakfast. And it finishes at sort of, you know, uh, nine o'clock in the morning um, once the last person leaves the bar. Um, and, and so they knew each other that way. Jack, who ran casinos and was more of a kind of heavy, if you like, you know, I mean, he wasn't afraid to swing a baseball bat or a punch. Um, he, he always admired the class of Joe. Joe, Joe Farron could always had this sort of, you know, European sense of class that meant that he could sort of smooth talk everybody, create these great chorus lines. He knew how to let, make everyone dress. He knew how to run the restaurant. He knew how to have the bar working great. Uh, he knew how to make everybody feel happy when they came. He would remember everybody's name. So, so the combination of this kind of Jack wanting to get a classier kind of joint and move up a little bit and Joe needing someone who could run and enforce a casino and had the money to back it meant that the, the, the two men, um, despite mistrusting each other and being very wary of each other, um, came together in order to uh, try and achieve their dream. And remember, by this point, which is now the, the late 1930s, um, Jack Riley, of course, could not go back to America because he'd have to do uh, 30 years prison time that he owed Oklahoma. Um, but Joe, who was an Austrian Jew, uh, no longer had a passport. Uh, he was unable to renew his passport at the Nazi-controlled Austrian consulate. And so both of them had nowhere to go. They had to, they had to sink or swim in Shanghai. One of the other people you mentioned is a, a madam named Evil Evelyn. So tell us a little bit about her. <laughs> well, e Evil Evelyn is, is sort of one of those characters that fascinated me. You know, I've, I've been researching old Shanghai, and I lived in Shanghai for, for a long time. Um, and I thought... This is one of the great sin cities on earth. And I thought, I'd, I've seen everything. I've seen their casinos. I've seen the, 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 the mass prostitution that, that went on, the, the drug taking, of course, opium, but also, you know, the, the production of um, heroin and uh, methamphetamine as well at that time from, from Japanese technology that was going on. But Evil Evelyn took it one stage further. What she decided was that what Shanghai didn't have was a brothel 
for bored housewives. <laughs> and the, all of these uh, foreign men in Shanghai worked very hard during the day. You know, they're in their offices dealing away in gold bullion and banking and the China trade all day long. And they weren't really paying sufficient attention to their wives. So she was going to set up a, a brothel in the middle of the French concession. And she was going to staff it with all these extremely young, good-looking kind of Rudy Valentino type guys who were there playing the higher lie or, you know, who were sort of from the Argentine or, or were were Basques, very young, very good looking. And um, the women would go there and they would spend the afternoons with these guys. You know, I don't need to spell it out for your listeners, I'm sure. Um, and I thought that that's quite a Shanghai story. You know, that, that, that that's taking it one step further, except Evil Evelyn proves Shanghai is the craziest place on earth at this time. And she takes it another step, which is she has cameras hidden in every room and she films everything that's going on. And afterwards, the women, the housewives would all come and have a cup of tea with her afterwards uh, before they went home. And then after they'd visited a few times and she'd filmed them, she'd casually show them a little bit of film and she'd say, this could, of course, end up being sent to your husband's office. So it was a blackmail sting. Wow. In the end. And I just thought this is like just when you think Shanghai's done everything, it comes up with another twist on, on how to be a mad city, really. So in 1932, so we were talking, you know, we, this is between wars. Uh, you were talking about how Joe and Jack couldn't leave. 1932, Japan uh, bombed the city and then in 1937 occupied it. Uh, tell mm. us about this time and what was happening with the casinos um, and uh, the nightlife. Well, of course, Japan had been encroaching and encroaching and encroaching on China. And in 1937, it did attack um, Shanghai, uh, but it didn't attack the foreign concessions of Shanghai. Around the edge of the city, uh, there, there's the Chinese controlled areas, and it invaded those and took over. And then it rolled up the Yangtze uh, into Suzhou. And of course, by September 1937, the, the horrific uh, rape, rape of Nanjing, which is one of the terrible incidents of the Second World War. But they didn't invade the foreign concessions because if Japan had invaded the foreign concessions, it would have meant going to war in 1937 with Britain with America, with France, and it didn't want to do that. It wanted to conquer China first and force the European powers out of um, Asia, out of Hong Kong, out of Singapore, the French out of uh, Indochina, what's now called Vietnam, Cambodia, and so on. Um, so it became an island, and it became what the Chinese called the Gudao, the, the, the solitary or the lonely island. And um, really, the party just kept on going. Um, many people did leave if you like the sort of straight people, if they could, left. But many, many people, of course, the criminals, the, um, the stateless refugees, they couldn't go anywhere. So they carried on and the nightlife economy became this uh, phenomenal uh, force. And, and areas that the Japanese sort of butted up against where effectively there was no policing became known as the Badlands. And in there were these giant nightclubs, but all around them were... Oh, illegal lottery parlors, smaller casinos, brothel shacks, uh, people selling heroin, selling opium dens, uh, people selling methamphetamine, uh, which was, of course, you know, rife in the Japanese army during the Second World War. And this and this became a lawless place. I mean, there were there were it used to be said that, you know, people who were assassinated or shot dead on a Saturday night would still be there on a Monday because the breakdown of, of, of civil society and services from the from the council, the municipal council that ran Shanghai was breaking down at such a level. So it was a completely out of control place. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. 
Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Paul French, author of City of Devils, who's telling us amazing things about the history of Shanghai. When did you first become intrigued by Shanghai and uh, realize that you had to write a book about it? Well, uh, probably when I, literally when I was about six years old. My great-grandfather, so I'm 52 this year, born in 1966, and my great-grandfather was still alive when I was about five or six years old. And he had served in the First World War in the Royal Navy, British Navy. And after the First World War, he signed on and stayed in, and they sent him to Shanghai, where he ran the coaling station for the Royal Navy's uh, Far Eastern uh, Squadron, which went from Shanghai down to Hong Kong and then back up the coast. Um, and when he, all I remember about him, because I was very young, was that on each of his arms, which were massive because he was a stoker, so he had, you know, shoveling coal into the engine, so he had enormous arms, there were two Chinese dragons tattooed up each arms, which were, which were quite striking. And they went all down his back with the heads intertwining. Now, I know everybody nowadays has tattoos all over their bodies, but in those days, it was a real sign that you were probably an ex-Navy person or so on in England. Um, so that sort of fascinated me about Shanghai. Later on, I went and studied Chinese, and uh, the, the university sent me to Shanghai to improve uh, my language skills. Um, and I ended up uh, working there for, for nearly 20 years in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And um, basically every moment I got, I tried to explore the city. There was so much old architecture there, the old streets. You know, in 1949, when after the communist revolution, um, it was almost as if a giant dust sheet was thrown over Shanghai. And that stayed there, really, until about the mid-1990s. Nothing changed. All the old buildings were there, the streets. Lots of the signs were still there um, in English and so on. So there was a real opportunity to explore. Now, since then, there's been this massive redevelopment and building, but there was a real chance to explore that city. And I think it's also, even with that break during the years of Maoism and so on, when it became very dark and, and dingy in Shanghai, I, I think still in people's sort of back brain, in their subconsciousness, Shanghai is still quite a sort of magical word. I think all of your listeners, you know, when I say Shanghai, there will be light bulbs popping off in their heads that will probably inv be involved jazz, opium, showgirls, gangsters, you know, it's, it's like an evocative place. So you've written now nearly a dozen books on China and Korea, and um, but you've chose to focus on Shanghai. Um, are there other parts that have grabbed your attention in, in China? Well, you know, I, uh, my last book before this uh, was a, was about an unsolved murder in Beijing around the, around the same time uh, called Midnight in Peking, which which was about the murder of a young. English girl uh, who was the daughter of a diplomat in 1937. It was a particularly horrific murder, and um, by an, by a very unique circumstance, it, the the murder was investigated by the head of the uh, Beijing Detective Bureau and a visiting uh, Scotland Yard uh, detective who was in China. It's the only incidence I know of a senior Chinese detective and a senior British detective working together. Now, again, because of Japanese interference, they weren't able to solve it, and her father, who was a very determined man 
went on to try and solve it. Um, but the war came and the paperwork got lost. And, and I went back and reinvestigated this case. I mean, it's not a novel. It's, a, it's, it's, based, it's written like a novel, but, you know, literary nonfiction. Um, and I discovered quite a lot of paperwork on it. So it's certainly, and I think I, I, think I solved it, to be honest. Uh, but obviously, uh, if you read the Amazon comments on the book, you'll see that lots of people disagree and have their own theories, which is, which is fine. Um, but um, I think that period, that between the wars period, in China is such a honeypot. And it's, it's very much like um, writing about Germany or somewhere between the wars as well. If you go back and you look at novels written around then, you know, sort of Christopher Isherwood's books about uh, Berlin in the 1930s. You know, we all know, or, or I think of something contemporary like Alan First's great um, spy novels about, you know, um, France on, on the eve of the Nazi occupation of Paris. And you think, you know, all your characters, whether they're real or invented people, um, don't know what's going to happen. But you know what's going to happen. You it's, they're not alternative history. I can't change the fact that Japan invaded China. Um, but, you know, the, the issue is, like, how are people who's going to get out alive and who's not going to get out alive and what's going to happen? And I think that kind of one American journalist who was in Shanghai in the late 1930s described living there as dancing on the, the rim of a volcano. It was everyone's sense that that. It was coming to an end. This giant party was coming to an end, though no one could really imagine how awful it was going to be. And I think like in Berlin at that time, in Weimar, Germany, the party was amazing uh, for many years. Um, and no one could, although people knew that bad times were coming, no one could imagine the horrors of um, uh, that the Nazis would, would would perform with the Holocaust and so on. And I think that, that that's something that, that's really fascinating, that you know, in the end, you know the end, but it's how those characters get to that point, I think. So just going back to Shanghai real quick, um, you, you had said that it has the old city has even survived uh, Maoist, you know, communist China. We were to visit there now, what would we see walking around? Well, you could still see a lot of the old city. I mean, you know, Shanghai was not, it's not like uh, many British cities or German cities. It wasn't bombed heavily uh, during the war. So um, the, the, the grid, if you like, the grid pattern of the city is still there. There's been so much redevelopment with lots of areas um, sadly uh, knocked down and, and sort of skyscrapers built. Um, but if you go along the uh, Bund, the, the, the sort of majestic riverfront, you'll still see the amazing old hotels from the 1930s. It's one of the great repositories along with, uh, uh, you know, um, Miami, and uh, some other cities around the world, one of the great repositories of Art Deco architecture um, globally. Um, and there's the old laneways and, and narrow lanes and houses still there. So you'd still get a feel for it. It's a very special city in a sense that, um, unlike Beijing, uh, it is a port city. Uh, and it's still very much a working port. And I think, I think port cities always, whether it's... Uh, you know, um, think of a port city around the world, anywhere, Liverpool, uh, Hamburg, anywhere like that. Port cities always have a slight uh, frisson, a slight, a slight edge to them. They're, 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 they're where ideas come in and out of countries. They're where immigrants come in and out of countries um, as much as actual products moving around. And so they're always mu much more of a sort of hodgepodge of ideas and people. And, and, you know, the most fun cities in the world are always ports. New York and and uh, especially exactly, Brooklyn. Yeah. I think Brooklyn on on its own has its own sort of portness about it. Even as New York has kind of tried to wipe that out of Manhattan, the the vibe is there. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Shanghai as well was also a great 
You have to remember at that time when you think of the Far East, Shanghai was the most modern city by a long way. But also in terms of ideas, it was a place, you know, it's where the Communist Party of China was was, was formed, which was a modern idea at the time. It, it, it's, it's where, you know... Uh, Chinese intellectuals uh, decided to read novels by the Bloomsbury Group and things like that. It's where great graphic art comes from. It's where the the, the Chinese cinema industry, the silent mm. movie industry, uh, was based as well. So it's a very modern city, and I think port cities are often uh, the most modern places because, again, ideas are coming in and out. They're usually, at least in the old days when everything moved by ship, uh, rather wealthy places. And they're this great mashup of peoples. I mean, that's not so true of Shanghai anymore, but at this time... You know, there's about three or four million people living there and give or take, you know, the, the vast majority of those are Chinese. But even then, they're from all over China. So, you know, they're speaking a mul multiple languages. It's a complete Tower of Babel. And you've got large numbers of Europeans, Americans and people from all, all over the world there, really. And of course, the Japanese in the 1930s were a massive community there as well. Um, so a much more multiracial, multicultural uh, city with all the vibrancy and intellectualism that that offers. Um, and actually, you know, occasionally, of course, everybody rubbed each other up the wrong way and you had problems. But overall, everybody fed off each other to create what in Shanghai they call high pie culture or sort of east-west mix. And, and you know that sort of thing. There's still a lot of nostalgia for it. The Chongsam or the Chipao, the sort of the, the Shanghai jazz sound, the Shanghai architectural style, a sort of oriental version of Art Deco and so on. You know, th th this, this all made the place very special. We've been talking with Paul French and you can find his book City of Devils in stores right now. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been a really pleasure. You've let me talk about my favorite subject for half now. <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the big books from the first half of 2018, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the top books of the first half of 2018. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well, thank you. It is very nice to have you on the show. Nice to be back. Uh, so tell us about these uh, best-selling books from the first half of the year. Okay. So, uh, yep, uh, as we do every year, we take a, a, a look at the best-selling books so far, as we like to call it. And um, people can think way back to the winter when Fire and Fury were selling at, oh, a, fu yeah. was selling at a furious pace. Uh, that was the top uh, print book sale mm. last year. The, we look at it in two ways, print and e-books. And so the print sale of uh, Fire and Fury was about 1 million copies wow. uh, in the first half of the year. And that took number one. And another book from Macmillan, um, A Higher Loyalty, uh, was number three. And that uh, sold over 500,000 copies. And in between there was a, a book that came out just a few uh, weeks ago, I think, Mark, uh, mm -hmm. Magnolia Table um, by Joanna Gaines. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing to see a cookbook up there between um, Michael Wolf <laughs> and James Comey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Um, That's really something. 
Yeah, but what it also points to this whole list, and we can go down it a little bit more, is you know obviously those three books are nonfiction, mm -hmm. and how uh, nonfiction and adult nonfiction in particular, uh, you know, is really. Uh, is what is what's driving sales. Um, we took a, a quick look at how unit sales did in the first half of the year, and overall they were up uh, two percent, which you know it's not, not bad in today's environment. And adult nonfiction was up four percent. Mm. Nice. And you know adult nonfiction is also you know the largest category. So it, you know it's not quite fair to say how adult nonfiction goes. So goes the industry, but um, you know in terms of print, um, you know it's certainly a key player. And then if you look down the list, I can see Rose is doing that now. We see some uh, books we've been talking about uh, for a long time. You know, You Are a Badass uh, was number 10. Uh, the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck was number 11. Um, the Sun and Her Flowers and Milk and Honey were 12 and 14. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about those books, you know, for, for at least a few years now. Yeah, so, definitely. So, you know, it's another thing that uh, points again to the importance of backlist for publishers nowadays. Um, and just a couple other things of note uh, on the, on the uh, print side. The first and highest uh, front list uh, novel was The President is Missing, mm -hmm. uh, which came in at number nine. And uh, I'm, I'm very impressed that it broke into the top 10, given it's only been out a few weeks. Yeah. I mean, there is some of yeah. that. Um, some of it is timing. Yeah. Um, but as we all know, uh, you know, uh, a book's biggest sales are in its first years. But, you know, by the end of the year, maybe the president's missing uh, will be higher. Because it's really interesting in Fire and Fury when we're putting, putting the list together. Uh, it sold 830 copies last week. So right. yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be uh, uh, a, a strong backlist item. But, you know, it served its point and it did really well and everybody's very happy. Well, especially, it. I think, wasn't that, didn't it, uh, there weren't enough copies to go around uh, when it first came out? Yeah, there was a little bit. Well, you know, they did it early yeah. because Trump was thinking to, uh, right. you know, block it or threatening that sort of thing. So there was a bit of a scramble early on. But lots of pre-orders. A lot of pre-orders. <laughs> Orders, and in the end, they say uh, um, that they, they got it out. Because um, in that same vein, if I can find it, maybe it wasn't high enough. Um, the book about A Day in the Life of uh, Marlon Mundo, oh, which yes. was a John Oliver-inspired right. book. Um, I'm not sure if we talked about it here. We might have. We did a bit. They had a lot of trouble yeah. getting their... Uh, their books out in the first couple right. of weeks after they announced it on uh, the Oliver Show, and independent bookstores are upset because it looked like it was only Amazon getting it. But in the end, uh, they did. They came in number six in the first six months of the year, and I believe I don't have the number right in front of me, but off the top of my head, I think it was over four hundred eighty thousand. That's copies. right, four yeah. four hundred eighty nine thousand, give so, or take, uh, um, according know. to NPD. All right, and so there's nothing to nothing to sneeze at. There. Indeed. Um, and then just taking a quick look at ebooks, since we don't have um, we don't have numbers for them, but we did use uh, iBooks and BNN.com this this time. Traditionally, we've used Amazon, but since I've gone to the new charting system, which includes Kindle Unlimited and things like that, uh, their ebook lists skew so heavily towards Amazon um, published titles mm -hmm. that. 
I mean, you can debate it two ways, and that might be for another show. I mean, what reflects more what's selling in the marketplace? I mean, Amazon is by far the biggest retailer um, for ebooks, right. but um, outside the Amazon ecosystem, what's selling? So we decided to fight our way outside of the Amazon ecosystem. <laughs> and what you find is, you know, um, fiction does uh, does dominate on the. Uh, on the ebook side, which is something you know we've known, and it, it it continues, and it seems to have had a little bit of a a, a pop this year because uh, print adult fiction was down four percent. Mm. Now we can't say how much ebook fiction might have been up because, like I said, we don't have numbers. But the woman in the window, the wife between us, um, little fires everywhere, the fall, the fallen, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, before we were yours even Origin. These are all uh, books that hit the top 10 on the iBooks list. And uh, most of those are also on the Barnes & Noble uh, top 10 list, including uh, some others by uh, Dark and Death and The Wife Between Us so, and Shelter in Place. So, um, you know, the trend, you know, the trend goes on. Um, that, uh, you know, eBooks are where it's at for, for fiction. That's interesting because I know that whenever I see one of those thousand page narrative nonfiction books, my first thought is I don't want to carry that around. <laughs> right. I, I want to have that in my phone. Right, right, right. Well, there is something to be said for that. Yes, 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 indeed. So uh, we'll have to see how that plays out for the rest of the year. Hmm. And uh, maybe sometime we'll get numbers from somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Looking beyond, uh, there's been a little bit of news uh, with Barnes & Noble. Yeah, well, well, we thought it would be a slow week um, because of 4th of July coming right in the middle of it all. Um, I was sitting back Tuesday afternoon, (laughs) getting ready for a little cookout, and all of a sudden somebody says, what happened to Barnes & Noble? So I did a quick look, and they fired uh, Demos Parnosis, who's been their CEO for 15 months or so. under sort of mysterious circumstances, uh, they said he was let go for violations of company policy, mm. and they didn't spell out what uh, those policies were. Or they did give a relatively long list of things that he didn't violate, and most of, <laughs> most of those were um, had to do with the financial side of it. Right. it wasn't you know he, he, didn't, he wasn't embezzling. Right, he wasn't embezzling. He wasn't cooking the books. Yeah. You know, it wasn't anything like that. Um, so it's, of course, led a lot of people to speculate, um, something I'm a little hesitant to talk about, but the two most prominent things are, we didn't actually put this in a magazine, um, maybe possibly sexual harassment or possibly, um, you know, uh, giving away trade secrets or something. Right. But nobody knows. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, I don't know if it'll ever come out um, you know what the what the reason was, but you know they fired him on the spot and they didn't give him severance. No severance, right? Yeah, which, which is shocking sh- at that level, and especially for Barnes and Noble. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> when they fired Ron Boy, he got three million dollars. Look, if anybody's ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, they, they, you know, and all kidding aside, they are they are generally loyal and pretty fair mm-hmm. um, to to their executives. Anybody who leaves, so uh, he must have done something. Um, you know, pretty extraordinary. But, but, but what we've taken that is, so 
that was Tuesday. So this morning, I was in contact with um, a number of uh, publishing executives who are still in town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they expressed a lot of frustration, disappointment with this. Um, Because, as one person said, you know, Parnassus was finally, he came from outside book selling, the book business, finally had his hands around, you know, the book, how book selling and book publishing works. Right. And he was starting to actually, you know, talk to the publishers a little more on a strategic level and talking about how they can make things work, right. make, work better. And now you're going to start from square one. Um, a couple of pu- publishers also pointed to that uh, he, they thought he did a pretty good job in being open and honest with them. He was trying to work coll- uh, collaboratively with them and trying to find you know, how they can all work together to, to grow the business. Kind of acknowledged that their supply chain needs to be improved. You know, and whilst he hasn't, or he wasn't able to turn store sales around, I mean, he did put in motion a plan to start these new prototypes, right. which will be smaller and hopefully more effective. Um, so, you know, they were, they're, they're not really happy with all of this. As somebody says, you can't fix things with a revolving door at the top. And that's what's been happening with Barnes & Noble since uh, Len Riggio stepped aside as CEO. There's been a few uh, CEOs and have not lasted more than a few months. <laughs> well, they've lasted a few months, but depending on how far back you want to go. But yeah, it's, it's true. I mean... Um, uh, well, we'll just start with Ron Bohr, who came in from Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, he lasted 11 months, and he really, they, they let him go really quickly after. I'm not sure if it was holiday sales or not, or right before holiday sales. They didn't have enough stock in, uh, in the stores. So uh, that caught Mr. Riggio's attention. So <laughs> he was out for that. Right. So then... Len Riggio, he, he stepped in as CEO for a while, and they had uh, brought Dean Mosan as chief operating officer, and they eventually decided that he, they thought he was doing a really good job and that he would be the CEO, and that was last April. Right. So here we are. Yeah. Um, where are we? We're at July 4th. Will they have somebody in place before the holiday season? <laughs> Will it make any difference? Right. Who knows? And instead of Len um, taking over as CEO... They uh, appointed a, a three-person committee um, made up of their CFO, chief marketing, plus the chief marketing officer and the guy that's the head of stores. So whether that'll be any better, because I was talking when I was talking to one of the publishers, it's like, well, who do you talk to to get something done? Right. <laughs> um, so I assume somehow it'll end up in the hands of uh, Mr. Riggio. It, it sounds like what they need is like an out-of-office email for Parnassus. It's like, if you have a question about XYZ, then talk to this person. If it's about ABC, right, yeah, then yeah, talk yeah, to yeah, that yeah. person. Yeah. You know, some, some clear direction, because um, in the absence of a single person to go to, you really need that. Otherwise, people are just going to turn to one another with their questions and go, I don't know. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, one thing that was pretty much a common thread uh, among a number of the publishers we talked to was that they would like to see somebody finally appointed who has, if not necessarily book selling experience, at least knows the book business. Uh, Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, they've tried from coming out of the industry. It obviously hasn't worked. And the trouble with that is I'm, I'm not sure who the candidates are I and mean, the sort of a limited pool, but certainly you can find somebody maybe has some out-of-the-box thinking but, and knows the business um, who could come in and sort of hit the ground running. I mean, I think he pronounces 
had some good plans in place. So, and as one publisher said, he would really like to hear quickly that they're going to go ahead with this. Right. But right. they don't need somebody to come in and say, oh, we're going to start the kitchen stores all over again, you know, which they tried right. two years ago and which Parnas just right. quickly thought was not a good idea. And I totally agree with them. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, let this plan at least get a start running with it and then you can tweak it as you go along. Right. Yep. Well, thank you, Jim. Um, good to have that update on what's happening there and what still needs to happen. And I guess we'll just keep tabs on it. Yeah, you know, something to write about on the 4th of July Eve. <laughs> you thought you were going to have a nice relaxing day. Yeah, that watermelon martini was ready to go. <laughs> Fireworks of a different sort. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much, Jim. It's always great to have you on the show. All right, thanks. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And today we have a special announcement for you. This is our last new episode of PW Radio. What's taking us away from it? We're developing an exciting new show called PW Insider, which will bring you even more of that juicy insider info on the nuts and bolts of publishing. PW Insider will feature top-tier guests from across the industry, including agents, editors, publishing executives, booksellers, and librarians, all giving you the insider info you need on the week's big news. PW Insider launches Friday, September 14th. Mark your calendars. In the meantime, we'll continue to run author interviews from our archive every week for your listening pleasure, right here on the PW Radio channel. And we might do the occasional new interview as well, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining us for nearly six years of PW Radio. We think you'll love what we've got in store for you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, signing off from Publishers Weekly Radio. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 